How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm so excited <laughs> we're having this conversation. Woohoo! I am too. And I'm really proud of you too, because I remember when we talked like three or four months ago when you brought up this idea of a podcast and that was such a great idea. And we talked a little bit and now like four months later, I get an email from you saying, Hey, do you want to be a guest? And I thought, wait, what? Oh, wow. You're doing it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That. You, you got that. it when it was like a germination of an idea. And I was like, what do you think about this idea? And it's, you know, unapologetically black unicorns. Did I have a title? I think I did. I think um, you did. Yeah. 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 And I was like, we just need to put people in touch with each other and hear our stories. And, and as usual, you were very excited. And, <laughs> and you would tell me the truth, too. You would tell me, mm, Karis, no. There's enough bad ideas in this field. We don't need any more. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. And um, so maybe we should start with a couple of things. Um, one is, who are you? Where are you? What do you do in your daily life? That's a lot of questions. I was just kidding. So Again, my name is Blake Brown. I serve as the director of Howie the Harp Advocacy Center. We are located in Harlem, New York, and we specialize in training people in mental health recovery to work as peer support workers. Um, Howie the Harp is a program under the umbrella of a larger agency called Community Access Inc. And I've been there for 10 years. I started off as a training coordinator, then I became director in 2013. So that's what I do. Woohoo! So it's so interesting because I'm trying to think. Anyway, I visited you in New York. I got to visit the program. I wanted to see what community access was all about. Right. And the CEO at the time was like, oh, oh, no, you got to meet Lene. And I was, he was like, forget about me. Come over here and meet Lene. <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, that's right. Forget about you. Come on, Lene. Like, let's like, tell me all about it. Right. And I think you had a training going on and I got to see the training. Um, yeah. So what kind of training do you guys do? So our training is uh, extensive training to teach people in mental health recovery to become peer support workers. So we, well, I will, I will talk about what we did before the pandemic because everything changed like with everyone else, but our training consisted of two parts, a 20 week in-class training, over 400 hours of training around the profession of peer support. And then we support people in getting an internship. And then after that, we support people in getting work after that. Wow. And as far as we know, we're like pretty much the only program that does something like this extensive training and internship and plus job support. Yeah. So how did you even get into this kind of kind of stuff? It's so strange because I came through the kind of the back door, actually. So back in 2010, I was I had like three jobs at the time and I was like a secret shopper and a cater waiter and doing something else. And I also was a volunteer story coach for the Moth, the community outreach program. I was teaching people in marginalized communities how to tell their personal story. And I've been doing that for several years. And then a friend of mine, Muhammad, he worked at Community Access and he was a service coordinator. And he thought, hey, I'd love to have a moth shop, uh, meaning the uh, training for people how to tell their stories at Community Access. As we went through and did the moth story training there, I met another woman, Karen Rosenthal, who actually worked there as well. And I learned through her about Howie the Harp Edison Center. I'd never heard of peer support. I didn't know anything about peer workers, peer values, nothing like that. I just had my own lived experience. That was it. And so when I just heard about the center and what it was doing, I was thinking about how I wanted to get a full-time job and like settle down instead of running around with three jobs. So mm. I just saw the mission and I thought, this is kind of cool. This idea of helping adult people who are knocked out of life a bit by mental health issues. And being able to use lived experience, that experience to help other people. 
Yeah. I just found that to be completely inspiring and very unique and very needed. I mean, talk about like making room for everyone, right? Making, yeah. making every, like everyone has a contribution to make, right? Mm-hmm. So I just love that thought. So I applied, long story short, I got, you know, they accepted me. I, um, I had to learn as I went along. That was my thing. It's like I said, I had no background in it. So I learned as I went along. I did a lot of reading. So it was a lot of flying the ship and changing the engine at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The thing I like about the moth is the storytelling, right? And kind of honing your story and learning how to tell that story. How did you even get involved with that? It's well, and I'm asking because it's such a nice transition to doing the peer work, which is about personal story and figuring out how to use that personal story with intention. Right. So tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm just like, you know, what's so funny. I don't even remember how I heard about the moth or even their community outreach program. I mean, I was with them from like, I think it was like 2009 to 2014, something like that. But I just kind of fell into that. I, it was very early when they were just starting their community outreach program, that program where they actually help people in the community, whether it's, you know, I worked with people in, um, in substance use organizations. I worked with older people. I've worked with high school people. So it was just basically giving voice to people who normally you wouldn't hear from, right? And I, again, I love that idea. And I just learned a lot about helping people tell their stories and helping people be succinct, helping people, um, you know, tell the story they want to tell in a way that's really compelling. But you know what, you know what I'm really aware of now? What I was doing is called story coaching, what I was doing. Story coaching is very much like a therapy in that what life is really about is the stories we are telling ourselves, Uh right? The stories we are telling about ourselves in terms of our diagnosis, the stories we are telling ourselves in terms of how life works, the stories we're telling ourselves about what we can do and what we can't do. These are all stories. Uh I have discovered or recognized, I should say, not discovered, but recognized in my work with the moth and even at HTH. It is clear to me that if you find a story to tell yourself that serves you, you can be anything you want and you can do anything you want. It's really important that we be aware of the stories we're telling ourselves about who we are, where we are, what we're doing, what other people are doing, because those stories could lift us up, knock us down, get us to react in ways that do not serve us. Mm -hmm. I'd like to bring that more to the forefront that that if you really think about it, it really is the stories we're telling ourselves that make all the difference in our lives. That is so, I'm just sitting here going, okay, do I have goosebumps? What's happening? What's (laughs) happening? Because that is so true. Because I kept thinking, well, what about the stories people tell about us that then we kind of ingest, digest, Unfortunately, we don't poop them out. We keep them in to ourselves. That's a horrible analogy, but we keep them in ourselves. And then it becomes the stories we tell about ourselves because they were told to, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I would say that's exactly where my, my greatest struggle most of my life came from was, you know, I grew up in a black family, but I grew up around white people my whole life. I was the only chip in the cookie from preschool to kindergarten to grammar school to middle school. So all those informative years, I was usually one of the few chips in the cookie. And I can look back at that and recognize now I did not have a good sense of self as a black person, as a human being, as a woman, as a black woman, all those categories of who I am and how how I identify was all very much altered Mm -hmm. by the stories 
that outer community told me about who I was, right? I was a threat. Mm-hmm. I had cooties, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't listening. Mm-hmm. I talked too much. I talked too little. I wasn't being friendly enough. I mean, you know, all of those things I took on as my own stories for many years. And I, and when I think about when I first hit the doors at Howie the Harp and why I found this work so compelling, it's funny because when I first started Howie the Harp, I told my friends, I don't know what this is going to be, but I feel like I'm walking in here a mess, but I'm going to walk out of here a grown ass woman. Wow. Wow. And I will say 10 years later. Yes. So you are a GAW, a grown ass woman who is also yes. a UBU, an unapologetically <laughs> black unicorn. Do I have that right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, queen, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. And I do think, you know, there is something about, first of all, there's something about that building. Let's just be honest. There's something about the people um, at um, uh, Community Access and, and Howie the Harp. But, you know, we don't have our own Seder around the peer movement, if you will, like where we recount the history of where we've come from and who was before us, et cetera, et cetera. And so yep. sometimes some of this gets lost. I'm sure it doesn't in the Howie the Harp program because it's named after him. But um, as people kind of enter into um, the consumer, client, ex-patient, survivor, peer movement, has so many names now, um, they, they may not know the story of, of Howie the Harp. So who was this dude, Howie? So Howie the Harp, his, his, his uh, government name was Howard Geld. He himself struggled with mental health um, issues growing up. And it was during the civil rights movement, along with a lot of other pioneers who really saw a value, really understood the power of people with lived experience coming together and, and helping each other out to, to in recovery outside mm-hmm. of the system was the original was the original thinking. He was called Howie the Harp because he played the harmonica, the mouth mm-hmm. harmonica as a way to make money off the street on the streets. He was a street musician. That's mm-hmm. where his name came from. And actually if you actually Google his name, you find a lot of old videos of him playing his harmonica. It's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. And so back in the day, 25 years ago, I guess, or maybe 26 years ago, he was hired by Steve Coe, the CEO of Community Access, as a director of advocacy. And then at the time, he was thinking about how to make peer support part of the system. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, he worked with, you know, Peter Statsny, that famous psychiatrist who's always been very friendly with all of us. Uh, Celia Brown, of course, our pioneer, our first peer specialist in the state of New York. He had this idea of having a center peer run where peers can come together and be trained formally in how to become a peer support worker, including the values, et cetera. He came up with the actual concept itself. He even got some funding from Office of Mental Health. And then unfortunately, mm-hmm. about two weeks before we were supposed to open, he died suddenly. He was only 42 mm-hmm. years old. And I think mm-hmm. he... I think they said he died of a heart attack. Mm. So he never saw the center at all. He never saw it open. He never saw any of that part of it. He just had the idea mm-hmm. and got it rolling. But and I guess six months later, they opened it. And I think it was October of 1995 and named it in his honor as a way yeah. of paying him homage. But the interesting part is what people often don't recognize. And I like to say this a lot is since day one, Howie the Harp has always been led by black people. Yeah. Celia actually was a there at the beginning and then the first di- official director was Laverne Miller she was a yes. director for like 12 years mm-hmm. after her was Dwayne Mays he was director for like four and then I've been director now for seven so wow. it's always been it's always been black people who have been who've been leading it which I know kind of gets lost in the sauce but I think it's important you don't have a lot oh, of that peer- is very important yeah you don't see a lot of peer-run programs led no. by people of color 
No. So um, how does that become sort of part of part of your story is like the story that you tell yourself, like, how does that become part of the story that you tell yourself about being a, a person of color who's a leader who's doing this work? Is there a story in there that um, I think you talk about sort of that mentors other people? Because you say we can also mentor through our stories. That's right. We did talk about this a little bit about how one of the challenges I have is there are a lot of up and coming people of color in the New York area in the peer world who I kind of like keeping my eyes on. And at the same time, I unfortunately, or fortunately, unfortunately, being real with myself, I can't mentor everyone. It's a lot because it's something I wanted to add to this conversation as well is what makes my work most difficult for me when I look back over the past 10 years is that there's no one doing what I'm doing. Or I should say, there are other versions of Howie the Harp. They're in the Netherlands and they run them completely different. They're not peer run, right? We're the Mm -hmm. peer run, we're the mothership, we're the original one. So Mm -hmm. when I had challenges, when I was trying to figure out what to do, when I was trying, when I was in the middle of just really difficult transitional times at Howie the Harp, I didn't have people to go to who knew what I was talking about in terms of the work. Mm-hmm. We have an, at community access. We have a lot of housing. That's the, the reg, that's the regular business, like 85% of the business, right? They have many housing sites and mm-hmm. many of their directors are people of color. They can talk to each other because they're all yes. managing housing, so housing sites, right? They can talk to each other about what they're up against and what they're doing. And I didn't have that. Right. It made it a lot more isolating. And I ended up taking on a lot myself because sometimes it was just you know easier to do it myself and figure it out myself. So I became hyper individualistic, doing things on my own, figuring it out myself. Looking back, I probably could have asked for help more than I did. Yeah. Took on a lot more than I needed to. Mm-hmm. But I think that, again, that comes from the circumstances, right? It came from, as I said, you know, not having anyone to talk to that and would understand what I was talking about in terms of the work. There weren't many of people, many people of color and peer support that were doing what anything close to what I was doing. And then mm-hmm. also, quite frankly, I mean, let's be real. We're all human beings. Just because someone's black, you're not going to die with them. Right. What? No, wait, <laughs> hold on. What, 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 what? We don't all get along. Come on, seriously. Yeah, just, oh, don't, don't be, don't be telling our secrets. <laughs> I have to tell people that all the time. It's kind of like, let me just check in. Do all white people get along? Do all Asian people? I don't think so. So this expectation that number one, we all know each other. And then that we all get along. is kind of super duper unrealistic. So I totally hear that. And I think, um, you know, in conversations I've had with other leaders, whether they be leaders of color or not in the peer movement, this is going to sound, I hope it doesn't sound very pejorative or anything, but like when you're running a program, one of the things that I think we've all struggled with is how do we reach out for help when we need it and have not have other people not perceive that as a weakness? Well, you know, those people with mental illness, they really knew we were, they really couldn't do it. Oh, girl. And then you add, I feel like the other, the other piece of, as a person of color, mm-hmm, see, we, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's, there's head shaking, there's neck yeah. rolling, there's eye rolling. And then there's this sort of, yeah, we knew it. And so I, I say you, I shouldn't say you, I say I would tend to not tell people when I needed help or the type of help that I needed, because my concern was the perception and then how they would interpret it um, and then go for the juggler of what they perceived as a weakness and say, well, see, and that's why. So to, to me, that's like, well, if I think about when I used to work at a university, 
I would talk to my coworkers to get a little extra support, um, that there was coaching available if I needed that coaching for support, that um, I, I looked and, and I saw what other people were doing at the university if, if they were, and usually it was, we talked to our other coworkers and we support each other. Yeah, call me tonight or, you know, let's talk it through or let's go out to lunch or, yeah, let's pull together a group and let's have this um, little chitty chat support group of like, how do we do this when we're kind of working at this particular type of university? I said, okay, well, that's natural. That's what, na- that's what people do naturally, rather than thinking of it, well, this is what you do because you have a mental illness. No, this is what people do to be who they are and show up who they are and, and get through kind of the things they have to get through. It's a very um, in line, right, to kind of balance like how we treat each other and ourselves as human beings with real needs in a capitalistic white patriarchal society that's already pretty brutal, right? <laughs> There's that side of it. <laughs> And then there are just some realities about that functionality that's just needed at work in order for mm-hmm. things to function properly that aren't personal, they're not personal against anyone. So, so for instance, I was, I was going to say like at Howie the Harp, we have this rule called the nine o'clock rule where class starts at nine o'clock, you're expected to be in your seat at nine o'clock and the doors close. And if you're not in your seat ready to start class, you're locked out of the class until 1030, that, which is the first break from class. And then when you get do get into class, then you're expected to get the information, get the notes, get whatever you missed during that time. Because we're not going backwards to try to catch you up because you were late. Mm-hmm. Now, at first, when we first started doing that, we got a lot of pushback, right? Because people are like, oh, but, you know, I'm on the subway and subways are really weird. And, you know, everyone had all the excuses in the world and like, oh, but my medication and my medication makes it hard for me to get up in the morning, et cetera. And so you talk about supporting people, right? We support people in thinking that through. We say things like, so you're saying that you're having a hard time getting here at nine o'clock because of the subway system. Okay, so how many millions of people run the sub- ride the subway system every day who are getting to work on time? How do you think they're doing that, right? How do you think they're, do- they're getting that done? Maybe it's because they add maybe another fix they add a little 15 extra minutes onto their time so that they have a little room in case the train does slow down, it does get stuck someplace and they're still on time. That's the expectation, right? To be here at nine o'clock. Okay. The other one is, okay, so the medication you're taking does make you sleepy. God, it makes sense. But have you talked to your doctor about taking it? Like what time could you take it the day before so that you'd be able to wake up in time to be here for nine o'clock the next day. That's a conversation you can have with your doctor, actually, if that's one of your issues, right? Mm-hmm. That's a conversation you can have. And we just found that setting up those expectations, setting up those standards, people live into them. Yes, they, they do. do. Oh my God. You're so, that is like they do. expectations, accountability, people live into them. It's a Pygmalion effect in a positive way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my I mean, and and here's the other thing too. It adds to their own self confidence and pride. They saw for themselves. Each student sees for themselves. I can do this. I can figure out how to rearrange my life a little bit so I can still have my personal life and still meet this obligation. That's how life works. Yes. That's how everyone is doing it. Mental health or no mental health issue. That's what everyone is doing. We're living our lives in a way that we can still show up at work at nine o'clock and meet what we're expected to do, meet our obligations. That's how it works. No, that's not in your job description. You have to live your life in a way so that you can show up to <laughs> work, but that's a given. Yes. That's what you're doing. Yes. Yes. So you keep that in mind. And if you can't make it, that's what vacation is sick town is for or whatever. But like, those are the kinds of things that we, that we talk about along with the actual formal training is to get people thinking about how do people actually live their lives? How do people show up on time? 
You know, yes. how do people like come to work on days they're not feeling the best? I mean, that's another thing that we talk a lot about at, at Howie the Heart because I remember when I first started, I actually asked a lot of employers what were some of their concerns or complaints against peer support workers. And those are the two things, being on time and showing up at all. Those are the two things that people got really bent out of shape about. So that's mm-hmm. why we thought, how can we start people getting people to start thinking about that while they're, they're howling the heart? Because our mission is not only for people to become effective peer support workers. We want them to be excellent employees, too. Yes. Because if you're an excellent employee, then you have choice, right? You have choice about what kind of job you want. Then you end up building more opportunity for yourself to move on to something else, right? You have to be a good employee. You have to be a contributor. You have to get that mentality of contribution. So the other thing we did in, in that is that we have conversations about showing up, right? Mm-hmm. One of the show ups are in our training, you can only miss 12 days of training. That's it out of the 20 weeks. And when you think about it, that's still pretty generous because it's only 20 weeks of class training, mm-hmm. nine to three, Monday through Thursday, nine to 12 on Fridays. So it's not, I mean, it is intensive training, but 12 days off. That's pretty right. good, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't ask for doctor's notes. We don't care why you took them off. You're a grown adult. You have that time to take off doctor's appointments, court appointments, housing appointments, mental health days, whatever you want to use. But after that, literally after 12 days, one minute after that, you're out. Because that is about figuring out for yourself, how do I show up and I'm not feeling perfectly great? Because most people, again, putting aside mental health, most of people show up. Most people show up on days they're not feeling that great, whether it's a bellyache, a headache. They broke up with their boyfriend yesterday. Their husband cussed them out this morning. You know, their kids are just going off the rails. They're not feeling great, but they still show up. And then you just show up the best you can and you do the best you can. Some days you're hitting it. You get like lots done. Other days you're like, oh my God, I got three things done. I'm so proud of myself, right? That's the kind of normal life conversations or thinking that we have to take on as mental health recovery people, right? We have to understand that, that we're human beings first. Before mental health issues, before our own struggles around that, we're human beings first. And if we think about us as human beings first, we think of ourselves that way, as well as understanding that that's how we're trying to show up in the world as full human beings. If we change that story, right, and say, yes, I can be at work at nine o'clock. Yes, I can be there majority of the time, like everyone else can. Right. I can live into these expectations like everyone else can. We will continue to shift the story around yes. mental health recovery. We will continue. It is part of it's on us, too. Right. Part of it yes. is on us. Yes. Um, yes. We, I mean, we do have a society that needs to be, you know, needs a lot of work understood. But we ourselves need to live into these expectations so that so to be able to demonstrate over and over again, we can do it, too. Yeah, I think it's right. Really important. I, like I am, what do I say? Two snaps up, two claps up, five things, you know, whatever it takes to say that, you know, my, if people could see my, my head is like shaking up and down, like, yes, 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 yes. And I think this is sort of the conundrum that we find ourselves in. And I think yeah. you gave some voice to that on, on one hand, it's like, um, I am not my illness, but on the other hand, well, because of my illness, I can't do that, that, right. And then there's almost an over-identification with the illness as to how you're going to show up at work. The thing I say is that, you know, in this role right now, you are a student. You're not a student. You're not a student with a mental health condition. You're not a student. Though those things may come into play, but your first identity and role here is as student. And here are the expectations. Your first identity in a workplace is you are an employee. And here are the expectations of an employee. Yes. Now we, we know we have, you know, and thank God, yeah, we have ADA for a reason. And you can use ADA as needed for yes. accommodations, but to point blank, say, I need an accommodation before we have even opened the door. 
yes. about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And you're telling, you know, it's like, well, let's work through here are the expectations um, and what accommodations might you need as an individual to achieve those expectations and which maybe just supports in how we talk about it. Or like you were saying, kind of, you know, how do you think about, you know, can you get up 15 minutes earlier to get on the train so that, you know, you will always be here before or, and at nine, right. <laughs> that, exactly. that is the expectation. So that again, people, uh, you know, Pygmalion live up to that expectation, but I do find that. Um, and I think this is a tough thing for us. There's this contradictory nature of how we think about, our advocacy work and our expectations around what happens in peer certification, what happens in the workforce isn't the same as if we weren't kind of in this box of a peer program. But, um, you know, this is just one of those things that I'm I'm so appreciative you brought it up because I think also, you know, we're not operating in a sheltered workshop environment. Right. Within a sheltered workshop environment, there are different expectations. That's why it's called sheltered. And again, you know, then people have to, um, translate what they've learned in a sheltered environment and put it into an unsheltered environment or everyday work environment. So you're kind of going through two or three steps to get people kind of to that level of expectations. And I, and I think what we're also doing is when you think about what the system, the psychiatric system can do, if you're really ensnared for a long time, you start thinking your diagnosis is your world and your life is organized around your diagnosis. And what we're saying is, Let's center your humanity and decenter your diagnosis and mm-hmm. what that means. Now, we spend a lot of time telling society to decenter that diagnosis, but we have to do that ourselves and how we live our lives and what we're asking for. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, we want we want to be cared for and, and, and be comfortable and be included. Yes. And when you center yourself as a human being with your actual circumstances decentered, whether you know whether you have a mental health condition or not, those are different needs. Yeah. And, and also your world opens more because now you're, now you're saying you're centering yourself as a human being overall and about your whole life in general, yes. right? It's not, yeah. it's not based on whatever, I hate the word symptoms, but you know, if you're dealing with, you know, symptomology with your diagnosis or what have you yes. like yeah. that, you know, that's not the center of your world. And if it is, that means you, you have, then that means you have to work on your wellness. That's a different issue. That's mm-hmm. not about having the whole world respond to it. It's like, oh, wait, I'm off center. Let me get, let me work on my wellness and then come back to, to this other thing. But yeah. yeah, I think we as a community need to have more real, honest conversations about what we can do as a group of people to live into destigmatizing ourselves and yes. living in our full humanity mm-hmm. and the stories that we tell about our experience. And we're responsible for that, right? It's like as Black people, it's like too often in greater society, other people have been responsible for telling our stories and telling us who we are. Yes. And now we're at this beautiful time in the world where we have what's called the internet and YouTube and podcasting, where getting our stories out is very democratic. All we need mm-hmm. is a mic and a camera and we can go, right? Right. So what does that mean in terms of the stories we can tell tell about ourselves as black people, as black women, as black people in peer support work, as peer support people? Like we can actually change the game. Yes. Because now we have the mic. We don't have to ask, would you give me the mic? No, I took it. I bought one. All right. I bought one. I went to Best Buy and bought one. Okay. (laughs) I I went to Best Buy and I bought my mic. Thank you very much. I I bought my own mic. Exactly. Exactly. I bought my, I got my own internet. Okay. I don't have to ask you for nothing. Yes. That's amazing. We're at a very different time now and that's very empowering. So we have a lot less need 
to, you know, tell somebody else, give me the mic. We can buy our own mics. Yes. We can build our own tables. Thank now, you. If we can, Thank you. Yeah, we can build our own tables. We can get a lot done if we can just recognize that we don't we don't have to just go after greater society to have a better understanding of mental health and telling them what they need to do in order to, to treat us better, but yeah. Yeah, we treat ourselves. ourselves. Yeah. yeah really so interesting. Somebody was saying, um, yeah, well, you know, people, there's just this learned helplessness and, and we've all agreed it's not learned it's taught and the systems yes. are teaching us this helplessness. Yes. And as peer leaders, peer organizations, peer training programs, et cetera, we do not want to contribute to that teaching so that people yes. be, have that learned helplessness. And I think that's, the, that's the, sh the, the shift that we need to make to that next thing. And I love the thing about, yeah, I, don't go yeah, I got my mic. Oh, thank you very much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I think, uh, you know, I always say, uh, you know, I love uh, Shirley Chisholm and, you know, bring your folding chair. And I'm like, yeah, we got our own table. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. we can build our table now. Yes, I can, I can exactly. bring my folding chair to that table because there may be decisions made at that table. We still need to be at that table. And I also think, you know, how do we invite people to our, our table um, but, yeah. and make sure that we have our table in the way that we need it? So if I even ask you, because I think we've answered the question, but <laughs> I want to make sure I always have that one last, if there's one super duper important thing that you know, we think we should be working on uh, or focus on um, in the mental health reform movement, if you will, that impact, especially people who are most marginalized, like, what would that one thing be? I you know you're going to have more than one, but you know, what would that thing be? When I think about what's happening in New York, we're trying to figure out a way to come together and have our own uh, union of types, right? I think I think so. I would say that I think if there was one thing for us to work on as peer support workers is in our communities, find ways to come together and work on things together, moving, moving things forward together. I mean, we tend to be Democrats, right? So we're like all over the map in terms of our opinions. But if we can start asking ourselves, what are the bottom line important things we want to see move? And what am I, what am I willing to do to make that, make that, you know, to contribute to that movement? What am I willing to give up? <laughs> Yeah. to make that movement happen and start thinking of us collectively as a we, as a peer movement, as a we, oh God, we could, we could absolutely transform the system. Yeah. We could absolutely make the biggest difference in the system if we really uh, came together. We don't have another hour. So <laughs> Lene, thank you. Thank you so much for having this wonderful and just powerful and impactful conversation uh, with me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Um, continue to be that UBU. And a GAW, since you are a grown ass <laughs> woman. Thank you for reminding. <laughs> and for our listeners, I hope you all remember to join in next week. Thank you. Thank you, Paris.